Hey, why don't you grab your Bible? If you have your own, that's wonderful. If you didn't happen to bring one today, why don't you grab a Bible that's scattered in the pew back in front of you? And why don't you turn with me to the very last book in the Bible? It should be very easy to find, the book of Revelation. And if you'll find chapter 2, uh, we'll be taking a look at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 this morning in the book of Revelation. Obviously taking a bit of a break from our ongoing sermon series covering the New Covenant. Uh, one time little sermon here out of Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through seven, and uh, if you have the Word of God in your lap, I'm going to ask you to do this. Uh, if you are able, would you stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word? So, would you please do that as we honor God and His Word? Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven reads this way: To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write: These are the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work. And your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who, who claim to be apostles but are not and have, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." And this is a reading of God's holy word. Would you pray with me, church? And then we'll have a seat. Father, we are so grateful for this word that you have given through your very son, Jesus, to this church that existed many years ago in the city of Ephesus. And yet we know that this uh, letter from Christ uh, um, is not just for that local church, but is for every local church and for the church universal of all time and in every place, so that we might learn what is acceptable to you and well-pleasing in your sight. And so, Father, we pray that you would send your Spirit to be among us, to soften our hearts to the, to the gospel message that Christ lived the perfect life that we could never live, that he died the death that we deserved on a cross for our sins, and that he rose victoriously and went into heaven to secure a place for those who would believe in him. Father, we pray for uh, those of us in this room that have trusted in Christ, that we would heed these words to the churches. And we pray for a man or a woman, a boy or a girl here today, that if they don't know your son Jesus as their personal Savior, that they would bow the knee and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Spirit, we also pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to your word and change us and challenge us accordingly, we ask in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Why don't you have a seat, church? Well, at the beginning of each calendar year, the acting president of these great United States of America gives what is called the State of the Union Address. So the president, before a joint session of the United States Congress, well, he talks about the State of the Union. He talks about the economy, and he talks about his legislative agenda, and he talks about his national priorities. In short, he addresses the State of the Union, and he answers the simple question, how are we doing as a nation? 
Well, brothers and sisters of grace, my goal for this very shortened, Lord willing, sermon this morning is to do something similar, to give what I will call a state of the church address, asking and answering from my humble perspective, how are we doing as a church? Now, friends, uh, this is not actually something new. In fact, giving an assessment of the church goes all the way back, well, to the passage and the chapters in the book of Revelation 2 and 3 that we read. It goes all the way back to Jesus himself. In fact, you could say, in a sense, that Jesus was giving seven separate state of the church addresses to these seven historical local local churches in modern-day Turkey. And so in these seven letters, of which we are going to just focus on one, the letter to the church at Ephesus, we see according to, well, the former Dallas Seminary uh, late uh, President John Walford, quote, an incisive and comprehensive revelation of how Christ evaluates local churches. So friends, if we want to know how Jesus evaluates a local church, well then we need to take a look at the seven letters to the local churches. Now, uh, friends, I don't by any stretch of the imagination uh, presume to take the place of Jesus to give an authoritative assessment of our local church. But what I'd like to do is to take a look at this letter to the church at Ephesus and see Jesus' words for them and then apply those words to us. I find that that letter is maybe most applicable to us as a local congregation, in my humble opinion. And so we're going to focus in on verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5. What we see in verse 1 is Jesus introduces himself, uh, and we see a bit of the character of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Now the images that he's going to share, that he holds the seven stars in his right hand, that he walks among the seven golden lampstands, we can't really understand unless we take a look at uh, Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus gives this stunning revelation of himself to the Apostle John. And we see these images being used. And so let's begin by discovering the character of Jesus that is particularly uh, pertinent to that local church and to every local church after them. Verse 1, to the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus Right, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So we must uh, begin where Jesus began. He says that he is writing this letter, and he is writing this letter to the angel, your translation may say, the messenger of the church in Ephesus. Uh, now, most likely this refers to the actual human messenger who would carry this particular letter and maybe go before the local church and read this letter uh, that was given to Jesus. Can you imagine that, friends? Can you imagine living in the first century? And here comes a, a messenger, and he has a letter. And it is a letter from Jesus himself. What a day in church that would be. Friends, that's what we have, a letter from Jesus. So it could be the, the human messenger. Some people take this to refer to the pastor or the, the lead teaching elder of the church. And so to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, right. The first thing that we see about the character of Jesus that he wants to emphasize is his authority over every single local church. His authority over the church. Notice what he says. 
He says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And so we have to ask the question, well, what are the seven stars? What do they represent? Well, we're told back in chapter 1 that the seven stars represent the seven angels or the seven messengers or the seven leaders of every local church. And so Jesus begins this letter by emphasizing the fact that he holds the messengers, the leadership, if you will, of the church. Where? In his right hand. That is, he has authority over over the church. He is, uh, to use Paul's language, the head of the church. He is the chief shepherd. And every shepherd, including myself and the elders here at Grace, are simply under shepherds. Friends, this is Jesus' church. And he has authority over it. And not only does Jesus emphasize his authority over the local church, But he also emphasizes uh, his presence, his presence among the local church. Notice the words again in verse 1. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and he who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And so we have to ask the question, what are the seven golden lampstands? What does that represent? Well, once again, we're told in chapter 1 that the seven golden lampstands represent the seven local churches that he's writing these letters to. So friends, what is Jesus saying? What does he mean to emphasize when he says that he walks among the the seven golden lampstands. He's essentially saying that though they and we may not see him physically, friends, is Jesus among his church? Does he dwell in the midst of his church? Does he walk and know the very heart and the activity uh, of every local church? Yes or no? Yes, he does. He knows Everything about that local church, and he knows everything about this local church, friends, even more than they and even more than we. And so he has authority over the church. He, he walks in the midst and knows what is happening amongst the church. And so we see the character of Jesus in verse 1. Next, we see in verses 2 and 3 that Jesus gives a compliment. In fact, several compliments to this local church. And so let's move now from the character of Jesus to the, to the compliments that he gives to this local church. Friends, let me just pause a minute and say that it is um, wonderful and encouraging news that not only does Jesus walk amongst every local church, but that he sees the good that we're doing for him. And he commends us for it. Isn't that great news? That is great news that he sees every single deed done by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God and for the good of his people. And he knows it. Friends, the person in the pew next to you, they may not know it, right? The people outside these walls, they may not know it. But does Jesus know it? Yes, he does. And he compliments his church. Verse 2, I know your works. That's sort of just an introductory phrase. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know what's going on there at the church in Ephesus. I know what's going on here at this local church in Cisna Park. I know your works. And then he goes on to talk about some of those works. He says, your toil and your patient endurance. I know you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who... 
call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Friends, since Jesus walks among the churches, he knows their strengths. And so here we see that he compliments this particular church for four things. Number one, he says that they are a hard-working church. Do you notice that? They are a hard-working church. That is, as it relates to their service uh, of Jesus. He says, I know your works. And then he, he, he uses this word. I know your toil. Your toil, the word in Greek essentially uh, is used elsewhere of physical, manual labor uh, of a farmer or, 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 or somebody working hard to the point of physical exhaustion. And so friends, what is Jesus saying about this church as they work for him? He's saying that you guys work hard. You are diligent in your service of me. Friends, is it good for a church to be hardworking in their service to Jesus? Amen? Amen. It is good. And they were doing that. They worked hard as it related to Jesus. Number two, they endured. In fact, it's, it's mentioned twice in this passage. As it relates to life's circumstances, Jesus commends them for enduring. Notice the words. And your patient endurance. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and that you have not grown weary. This word Jesus is, Jesus used here, uh, endure or endurance, it has the idea of remaining put, a sort of staying in a situation under tremendous pressure or pain over the long haul. In other words, they were enduring pressure from the outside. It was difficult, and yet they endured. When they faced persecution, they didn't recant their faith. When they, when they faced cultural pressure, they didn't give. When they had economic hardship, they didn't relent. And so this church is hardworking. This church, as it relates to life circumstance, they endure. They're in it for the long haul. Number three. He praises them for their morality, for their morality. That is, as they were relating to the world. Notice, he says, and I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil. Friends, is it a good thing for a church to bear with those who are evil? No, it is not. He says, you cannot bear with those who are evil. In other words, they didn't put up with immorality in the church. They were faithful to practice church discipline. They encouraged people towards holiness and towards obedience. Friends, they took their cues not from the, from the world, but from the word, right? And so they, they, they worked hard. They endured. They, they cared about morality and obedience. And then number four... Uh, they were characterized by orthodoxy, which simply means right belief. As it related to the truth, they cared about the truth. Notice, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. This likely refers to itinerant or traveling teachers that would infiltrate local churches. Uh, they, they would call themselves apostles of Jesus, but in fact, they were uh, fakes, and they were teaching heresy. We see in verse 6 that Jesus actually mentions a particular group called the Nicolaitans, and they were false teachers, and he says, you hate the teachings and the works of those guys, right? 
They cared about truth. Friends, let me ask you a question. Should the, the people of God care about the Word of God? Yes? Yes. We should care about that. We should value that. And so, friends, as I take a look at our church, I think there are uh, traits that are similar, that are, are worth praising. Friends, I think that there are many people in our little congregation that work hard. Friends, let me commend you. Many of you work hard. You are tireless in your effort to serve Jesus. We have Sunday school teachers who have taught for years, if not decades, week after week, faithfully preparing the Word of God to teach the truth in the gospel to our little ones. That is worthy of praise. It is worthy of our thanksgiving. We have deacons who do much behind the scene to make sure things are uh, on the up and up and to make sure that we're financially faithful. We have Awana teachers who week after week do the same thing. And I could go through all the list of our ministries. Friends, I want to commend us. There are many of us who work hard. Jesus commends people who work hard in the service of him. Friends, there are many of you who have endured hardships. There are many of you who, who sit in these pews week after week and you suffer hardship for the sake of Christ and you endure hardship through the world. And you do it without forsaking your faith. You do it with a smile on your face and your faith is being refined. Friends, how many of us have endured the death of loved ones? How many of us have endured a a job loss or difficult marriages or physical sufferings? Friends, I I think of uh, my time that I enjoy over in Hoopston with uh, with Jean Feller, who is still a part of our church, though she is not here in body. She is here in spirit, and we talk much about the local church. And she loves you, and she prays for you. And I always ask her, how are your eyes, Jean? Because she's going blind. And she says, oh, they're about the same as they were. And I don't know if they were about the same as they were. Friends, I have never once heard her complain about that. I tell you what, if I were in her shoes, I'm not sure that would be the case. We have many saints in this dear congregation who endure hardship. We have many in this church. Friends, many of you want to pursue holiness and godliness, and you should be commended. You shun evil. You care about the fight against sin. You cling to that which is good. You humbly repent in your relationships with your husband or your children or, 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 or church or, or, or co-workers because you care about pursuing godliness. Friends, I want to commend this church because many of us, I hope all of us, care about doctrine. We care about the faithful teaching of the Word of God. We value the authority and the inspiration and the regular reading and teaching and study of the Word of God. I recall a conversation that I had with a man in our church whose father periodically attends the church, and he was encouraging me by saying that his dad was commending us for being a church that preached the Word. And that's not just me, okay? That's not just me, right? That, that, that emanates down into every aspect of what we are. And he says, when I come to your church, I don't get a 10-minute little homily, right? Friends, you, you guys know me well enough that 10 minutes, that's my introduction, right? We're going 40 minutes, baby. Well, sometimes. <laughs> not today, probably. <laughs> but friends, we, we value that. 
And there are other things that I can mention that Jesus doesn't mention. I'm so blessed to serve at a church where there is a spirit of unity and cooperation. I have been tremendously blessed during my time here. I rarely deal with infighting or preference battles. And I'm so grateful that you follow leadership and that you try new things and that we're willing to do things for the sake of Christ. And I am tremendously blessed. When I talk with other pastors, uh, it, it is discouraging to hear of some of the things that are happening in other churches, but I I, I always walk away feeling like, wow, I have a great church to serve because I don't deal with half of that stuff, and I'm extremely grateful. I could go on and on and on, but for the sake of time, we're going to move away from the section of compliment, and we're going to move to the section well of criticism in verse 4. This is a, a healthy church, we think, right? This is a church that has many commendable qualities, just like ours. But when Jesus looks and walks uh, among a local church, well, there are some things that need improvement. There are things that need to be challenged, as there was in the city of Ephesus. Verse 4, But I have this against you, Jesus says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, uh, some folks, uh, some translations will say something like, you have lost your first love. Uh, seeming to indicate that the, their highest love for, should be for Jesus, and, and they actually don't love Jesus first anymore. While a valid interpretation, I don't really think that that's the best interpretation. I think the best interpretation is that this is referring not to the church's love for Jesus, but for the church's love for one another. And there are reasons why, and we can talk later. But for this shortened sermon, I just want to reiterate this, this, this reality. Uh, the New American Standard translates it this way. I think it's the best, the most literal translation. You have abandoned the love that you had when? At first, right? That is, the, the, the love that you used to exhibit and display for one another earlier on in the church's earlier days. In fact, one commentator translates this verse this way. He says, you have given up loving one another as you did at first. And I think that is the best idea. In fact, we get a hint of, of how this, this loveless church, if you will, this love-lost church, uh, how did they find themselves in such a state? We'll take a look at the word in verse 4, but this I have against you. My translation says that you have what? Abandoned. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Friends, this word uh, to abandon something, it means to neglect it. So just think about that for a minute. To abandon something, it has the idea of sort of leaving it alone. In other words, you're not actively doing something. You're saying, that's there, and I'm just going to leave it be. I'm just going to neglect it. I'm just going to let it stay in the state that it was. It means to neglect something. It means to leave something in place. And so, friends, when you neglect something, you're not actively working against it, are you? You're just saying... I'm not going to work at this anymore. I'm just going to leave it alone. Friends, this shows us that this church hadn't intentionally, they hadn't intended to sort of stop loving one another like they did at first. They didn't mean to. They're not trying to. And friends, that's the point. They're not trying to. They're not being uh, intentional in their love for one another. A story is told of a of a couple, a husband and wife, and they were driving along uh, in, their, uh, in the truck uh, from church. 
And the wife was sitting in the front seat, and it was one of those old school kind, you know, like a single, single cab, right? No, just a, just one extended seat. And the, uh, the husband, of course, was driving, and the wife was, well, she was all the way so, towards the other side in this long seat. And she sort of looked at him, sort of as if uh, pondering uh, something. She said, honey, do you remember when we first met? Yeah, uh, yeah, I do. You remember how close we used to sit to one another in this truck? Yeah, I do, honey. You remember how you used to put your arm around me? Yeah, yeah, I do. What happened to those days? She asked her husband. With one hand firmly attached to the steering wheel and the other resting on the empty seat between them, the husband simply replied, Well, I haven't moved. I haven't moved, right? You're over there. Here I am. And what's the implication? Well, honey, you're the one neglecting, right? You're the one moving away. Friends, let me be clear. This is what had happened in the relationships in that local church, right? They had neglected it. They had begun to move apart through neglect and unintentionality. Friends, may I humbly suggest and challenge us that we too, every local church, including ours, is in danger of that happening. Every church is in danger of this happening. Friends, the greatest threat, in my humble opinion as your pastor, to our love for one another, as I see it, is not our, uh, that we don't want to love one another. We like each other here, I think, right? And many of us love one another. We want to love one another well. But it is a lack of relational intentionality. A lack of relational intentionality. We are neglecting. Could we be neglecting our relationships with one another? Could we just be setting aside valued and necessary relationships, leaving it in place, which is what the word abandon means, in pursuit of other things that we have prioritized higher than our relationship with one another? Could it be that we are slowly drifting away for our love for one another? Friends, while I think the breadth of our church is growing, from time to time there are more people in the pews, but could it be that the depth of our relationships are shrinking? Could that be? Let me challenge each of us here, including myself, to be more intentional. Number one, to take more initiatives with folks in the church. So here's what it could look like. Um, And I'll ask you with a question. When, I just want you to ponder, when was the last time that you have had someone from this church in your home for a meal? I just want you to ponder that. When was the last time that you intentionally reached out with, to someone in the church, not family, that doesn't count, not family, I mean it counts, but you know what I mean, not family, somebody else that you wouldn't normally be getting together with, to have them for a meal? When was the last time that we did that? Friends, let me just encourage you. Every now and then, have someone over. Every now and then, we've got lots of good restaurants here, right? We've got a brand new coffee shop. Take him to coffee. Take him to, to eat, right? Go, go spend some time with someone that maybe you just wouldn't normally do that. But not only do we need to do that outside these walls, but friends, we need to do that inside these walls. Friends, don't just settle for talking to the people that you are comfortable with. Don't just settle talking to the folks that you are comfortable with. Go introduce yourself to someone. I'm guessing that they're not going to bite your head off, right? It's, it's, it's going to be okay. You can do it, and I can do it too. Don't wait for them to come to you. You go to them, right? 
Friends, while it's impossible and unreasonable to think that we have to be best friends with everybody in a church our size, that's, it's impossible, it's unreasonable. But what I would suggest that we can push towards is that we can know everyone in our local church in, an, in, 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 a, in a more intimate and personal way throughout the months and the years, right? In other words, you don't have to be best friends with me, and I don't have to be best friends with you, but can you get to know me better? Can I get to know you better? And friends, I think the answer is yes. Well, let's close then with a call to respond. Notice verse 5. What does Jesus say? Three things. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. So, friends, first of all, he, this, is, this is fascinating. He calls people in a local church to remember what it used to be like. In the sense of, boy, wasn't it good when I wasn't in church for two or three weeks and somebody called me? Wasn't that great? Wasn't it great when I walked in the door and somebody greeted me and asked me how my week was? Wasn't that wonderful? He says, remember those things. And not only remember those things, but number two, repent. That is, stop the backward slide. Don't don't abandon your relationships. Pursue them. And then number three, return. Return. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the what? What does it say, church? And do the what? Works. Do the works you did at first. So, friends, let me just ask you a question. Is Jesus calling us to conjure up emotions for people that maybe eh, we don't like as much? Is he asking us to, to, to get along necessarily? Like, do I have to feel something for you in order to love you? The emphasis is on the works. Do that which is loving, right? You don't have to conjure up emotions. Decide to treat them with love. Decide to pursue them. Do what is for their best. Let your actions lead your heart, is what Jesus is saying. Or, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that a loveless church will eventually be a dead church. That's what he's saying. A loveless church will be a dead church, or at the very least, a loveless church will, will, will be a church that no longer shines its light in the, into the community. You see that? The church is a city on a hill, right? Go let your light shine before men. We're, we're like lampposts. But Jesus is saying, listen, that, that light's going to be snuffed out if a local church doesn't in, in, intend to pursue intentional Relationships. So, friends, would you pray with me now? And I'll ask uh, uh, J- Dan, excuse me, is going to come and share some uh, exciting news with us. Father, we are so grateful uh, for your word. It is life to us, and it is life-giving, but also it can be hard to hear because we have areas of neglect, uh, and we pray that you would stir our hearts to love you and to love your people more. We pray in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. Come on up, Dan. Thanks.